Well, good morning. I was nervous this morning, and I think rightfully so, to not be leading music, because the last thing I want to do is, um, well, get volunteers to put me out of a job. So, and they, they did a really good job, as I expected. Um, and they, uh, week in and week out, our volunteers here across the board, but uh, specifically our musicians, um, just make me look way better than I really am. So thank you to everyone who helped be a part of that this morning and this week and doing all those things. Um, We're continuing this morning in our series on the Gospel of Luke. Uh, In particular, we're taking a closer look at some of the parables that are unique to Luke's Gospel. And as I actually was saving one of these files and I was naming it and trying to name it something short, I, I typed in closer Luke. And I couldn't believe, has Ben made that joke yet? That we're, it's a closer Luke at Luke? Okay, anyway. Um, he, he loves puns. I just couldn't, I don't know. Maybe he thought of that first, and maybe it's not that funny. So, anyway, we're taking a closer look at Luke, and we're going to be looking at Luke 15, 1 through 10 this morning, which is a fairly short passage. Um, so without further ado, let's just go ahead and read Luke 15, 1 through 10 together. It says this, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So he, that's Jesus, he told them this parable. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now this isn't a typical sermon introduction where, at least when I preach, I try to tee things up with an illustration. Because the parables are the illustration. And so I'm just going to cut to the chase. If a shepherd will do this for his sheep, why wouldn't God do this for the people he has made? If a woman will do this for a coin, why wouldn't God do this for the creatures who bear his image? Now, I wear a couple of bracelets. A few of them are cheap little plastic ones my kids made. They're not particularly valuable, except they are extremely valuable to me, if you know what I mean. If you saw them laying on a table, you would not be tempted to steal these bracelets. But if I lose them, if I misplace them, I kind of get a sick feeling to my stomach and I want to find them. And I'm sure I'm not the only person here who has something like that, where we need to find it. It's not especially valuable. But if we can feel that way, if I can feel that way over a bracelet, why wouldn't God feel that way about people? 
Why wouldn't God receive sinners and lead them to repentance? Why wouldn't God want to restore them to himself? And as we look at these parables, we see what's what's repeated is joy. There is joy. There is a party. There There is joy in celebrating in heaven when the lost are found. Jesus receives sinners because he delights in saving them. This is who God is. And this is what God does. God delights in showing mercy. Jesus received sinners and ate with them because Jesus delights in showing mercy. That's it. That, that's the sermon. That God delights in showing mercy. If you remember one thing from this morning, I want it to be that. That God delights in showing mercy. Now, of course, it's 1033. You're expecting me to preach longer than that. And I am happy, more than happy, to meet those expectations. Um, So let's pray and ask for God's help as we consider further God's delight in showing mercy. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you. For the opportunity to gather here, I pray that our time here, um, whether it's the songs we're singing, the prayers we pray, the attention we give to your word, the the way we are just interacting with each other as brothers and sisters, as your children. I pray that it would all be honoring to you. I pray that uh, when we walk into this place, uh, whether we've been here for years or we've been here only a few weeks, that we all would know that we worship a big, big God, that you are great and worthy of our praise. Thank you for your mercy. Help us to understand it and find hope in it and enjoy. Um, Thank you that you are a God who delights in saving sinners because that's what we are. Lord, I pray that as we move forward in this sermon that you would Free us from distractions and help us to turn our eyes on you, to focus on your son, that you, through the Holy Spirit, would be at work in us, helping us to be, making us to be the people that you would have us be, the people you have created us to be. Um, God, help us lay our burdens at your feet, um, our joys, our sorrows, all of those things, knowing that you love us, you care for us, and that you, you've proved it. Uh, so, so well with your son, Jesus Christ, dying on the cross. So I pray we, our hope would be in him and that this morning you would just work in us and through us. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay, so God delights in showing mercy. So what is mercy? If you're thinking quickly on your feet, what pops into your mind? Perhaps it's a lenient judge. Or maybe it's the hero letting the villain walk away. Maybe it's a child forgiving their parent for the parent's mistakes. Mercy is forgiveness instead of vengeance. Mercy is withholding the penalty that is due. Mercy is not getting what's coming to you. And to better understand mercy, we often compare it with grace. Grace is getting what you don't deserve what you don't deserve, and mercy is not getting what you do deserve. So grace gives and mercy withholds. Now, if this isn't where your brain went first, it's likely that you're nodding along in agreement now. I don't see a lot of heads nodding, but you're probably there in your brain, right? 
we've, if you've been in the church for some time, you have heard these definitions that grace is what you don't deserve and mercy is not getting what you do deserve. So mercy is like the dam holding back the floodwaters of God's wrath from utterly wiping you out. But I want to make the case that the mercy of God is more than not getting what we do deserve. God's mercy is so much better than that. The mercy of God is his compassion for those in need. It is his love and desire to help the poor, wretched, weak, and vulnerable. God's mercy is his faithful love that helps us in our misery. And to prove that I'm not just making this up, let's, of course, turn to God's word. We are going to look at Psalm 51.1, which I believe Ben mentioned last week as well. So Psalm 51 verse 1 says this, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Now, no one would blame you for reading Psalm 51 1 and coming away with the understanding that mercy is not getting what you deserve. And to some extent, that is true of mercy. King David, who wrote Psalm 51, is also the subject of Psalm 51. He's miserable because he has sinned horribly. He slept with another man's wife and got her pregnant. When he attempts to cover it up and fails, he kills this woman's husband, who is a loyal soldier in David's army, by sabotaging him on the battlefield. Just horrible, awful Wicked stuff. And for a time, David thinks he's gotten away with it. But he hasn't. He's confronted by the prophet Nathan for this sin. And then the child that David's adultery had conceived becomes ill and dies. So David is heartbroken on multiple levels. And it was all his fault. When David asked to be rescued from his misery, it is the misery his own actions had caused. He deserved to be miserable. When God showed mercy by removing his misery, God did indeed keep back what was due. But the mercy of God is not merely withholding the punishment that we deserve. It's improvement. God improves our situations in his mercy. Because if you continue looking at Psalm 51, it won't be on the board, but if you have it in your Bibles, um, it's not just the blotting out of transgressions in verse 1. It's the cleansing of Psalm 51, verse 7. It's the joy and gladness and rejoicing of Psalm 51, verse 8. It's a creation of a clean heart and right spirit in Psalm 51, 10. It's God's presence mediated by the Holy Spirit in Psalm 51, 11. It's the joy of salvation in Psalm 51, 12. These good things, these helps are all gifts of God's mercy. Now, looking at the original languages also can shed some light on the meaning of mercy. There are three Hebrew words. I can't pronounce them. I'm not going to try. But there are three Hebrew words that are at various points translated as mercy. And all three of them are used in Psalm 51. One, One, the first, is related to grace or favor. One is related to God's loving kindness or his faithfulness. 
And the, the other, the last, is related to the protection provided by a mother's womb. It is compassion that protects the helpless. So you might read Psalm 51.1 as, Favor me, God. Be gracious to me, God, according to your mercy, according to your compassionate protection. Blot out my transgressions. But there's an even better place where all three of these words are used. The most cited verse of the Old Testament in the Old Testament. So it's the verse that the Old Testament itself uses the most is Exodus 34, 6. It's quoted or referenced dozens of times. And all three of these words for mercy that show up in this verse. And these are God's words about himself. He says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That statement could be read as God is merciful and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in mercy and faithfulness. And when it's translated into Greek, which is the language of the New Testament, that's basically what it says, that God is merciful and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. There is a kindness, a sweetness, a a tenderness to the mercy of God that we miss when we only think of it in terms of what it holds back. Yes, mercy can be withholding of punishment, but it is so much more. It is protection and commitment and love and compassion and favor. Mercy is an act of grace that relieves misery and suffering. Titus 3, 4 and 5 says this. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Now, I believe that this verse makes a lot more sense with this fuller understanding of mercy. It's not according to God's withholding of punishment that he saves us, although that certainly plays a part. But it's according to his love and compassion and his delight in rescuing us out of helplessness and distress. God's grace is merciful. The free gift Helps us out of our misery and need. God's love is merciful. His love for us seeks us when we are lost. This is who he is. And this is why Christ received sinners. Because God delights in showing mercy. Which brings us back to Luke 15. So Luke 15 opens by telling us that tax collectors and sinners were All drawing near to Jesus. And if you have a Bible open to Luke 15, there's a good chance there is a very large number 15 right there. Telling you this is the 15th 15th chapter. And it might give you the impression that something new has begun. But if you look back at chapter 14 and the final verses, it says this in Luke 14, 34 and 35. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So as Luke 15 opens, who is it that hears Jesus? It's not the Pharisees and scribes, but the sinners and tax collectors. Christ's call to hear is being answered by the religious outsiders. The Pharisees and scribes are the salt, and it would appear that they've lost their taste. 
There's a similar passage in the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus refers to his followers as the salt of the earth. And he makes a nearly identical comment. If the salt loses its saltiness, what's it good for? In the context of Matthew, we are meant to apply those words to Christians, to followers of Jesus. But here in Luke, I believe we can also apply Christ's words to the Pharisees and scribes. Because salt was primarily used for purification and preservation. It made things clean. And the Pharisees and scribes were those most familiar with the purifying words of Scripture. Psalm 119 tells us that a man can keep his way pure by meditating on the word of God. The Pharisees and scribes were supposed to be experts on God's word. So if anyone was going to purify like salt, it should have been the Pharisees and scribes, the keepers of God's word. But they lost their taste. They lost their saltiness. Now, this is my favorite part of at least this passage, because the Bible doesn't actually say that the salt lost its taste. Um, That's what it says in English. But the, the Greek actually says the salt becomes foolish. That the salt has become foolish. And the word translated as lost its taste is where we get the word moron. So a moron may indeed be tasteless, but you and I know that's a matter of a different kind of taste. That's, you know, a matter of flavor, not foolishness. But we're talking about foolishness. So as we come to Luke 15, we are supposed to be on the lookout for salt behaving tastelessly. Tasteless salt, foolishness. And that's exactly what we find just a few sentences in the Pharisees and scribes grumbling. Their grumbling is reminiscent of the grumblings of the ancient Israelites against Moses when he led them out of Egypt. In Exodus 17, the Israelites grumbled because they don't have water to drink. But if you've read Exodus 15 and 16 before reading 17, You would know that God has just performed dozens of miracles, dozens of them, to save Israel out of Egypt, including giving them water to drink and giving them bread from heaven to eat. But the people still grumbled. And the grumbling was indicative of their stubborn hearts, their eyes that did not see and their ears that did not hear. Their grumbling, the Israelites coming out of Egypt, was rooted in a distrust and dissatisfaction with God. So it's not a coincidence that Luke refers to these faithless Pharisees and scribes as grumbling. Because they too have witnessed countless miracles. Things that could only be explained by the intervening hand of God. And yet they grumble. They are dissatisfied. They do not understand. The hearts have been hardened. Their eyes do not see, their ears do not hear, and their minds do not know. So what is it about these Pharisees and scribes that cause them to completely miss what is happening in front of them? What's the same thing that can cause you and I to miss God's work unfolding right in front of us? We misunderstand God and we misunderstand ourselves. We misunderstand God and we fail to see what he's doing And we misunderstand ourselves and we fail to see the role or the part we play that we can have in his work. We fail to see that God delights in showing mercy and we fail to see that we desperately need it. Now, once again, we're going to go backwards 
to add context to our passage. Luke 14, which Ben preached from last week, has much to say about humility. Luke 14:11 says, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Luke 14 also includes a parable about people making excuses to avoid a party. But he said to them, that's Jesus talking in Luke 14, starting in 16. But he said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. Looks like I had too much up there. In Luke 14, 33, Jesus declares the high price of discipleship. So this is moving on to Luke 14, 33. It says, so therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. So why have I marched us through those three things? It's because I believe in Luke 15, the Pharisees and scribes are guilty of transgressing, transgressing each one of these teachings. The Pharisees did not humble themselves. They had exalted themselves and put themselves in places of honor. When they say Jesus eats with sinners, they're obviously putting the sinners and Jesus beneath themselves. But why? On what basis? Sinners is an ambiguous term. The sins of sinners can be many and varied. But tax collectors, it seems obvious that their vice, their sin would be greed. They were lovers of money. But Luke describes the Pharisees later in Luke 16 as lovers of money too. Now as Christians, we know, at least in theory, we know that we are all sinners equally. Yet we categorize our sins as lesser and greater. And there is something to that. There are sins that are more dangerous, more deadly, more destructive. All sins make us equally guilty before God, but I think we can also agree that there are certain sins that, practically speaking, are worse. And we have these categories, we can speak about them, and we might feel better about ourselves because, oh, I didn't do that big sin. But the Pharisees don't even have that. They're not guilty of a lesser sin than the tax collectors. They were all greedy for selfish gain. They were all lovers of money. But the tax collectors couldn't hide it the same way the Pharisees could. The Pharisees could hide it under the guise of piety, under the disguise of worship. And this allowed the, the Pharisees to convince themselves that they were better off than the tax collectors. So we, we must be careful not to mask our sins. We must be careful that we don't excuse them because society at large finds them excusable. We must bring our sins to the standard of Jesus, not the standard of the world. So the, so the Pharisees, first of all, didn't humble themselves. Then, the next thing, they were the invited guests. Jesus is calling them into his kingdom. But they make excuses not to come. They make excuses not to join. They wouldn't abandon their lives and ambitions and values to stoop down and receive mercy. They had fundamentally misunderstood themselves and the part they could play in God's work. The Pharisees didn't recognize themselves as lost. They didn't see themselves as the lost sheep or the lost coin that needed to be found. That's not uncommon in churches to hear the word Pharisee thrown around. 
It's usually used to describe and insult people who put too much trust in the law and their own ability to keep it. Pharisees are self-righteous. And and given the historical context where the Pharisees were religious insiders in first century Israel, we tend to reserve the label Pharisee for those folks who are just too religious. Pharisees are the uptight, fundamentalist, ultra-conservatives who are bent on keeping the law and making sure everyone else keeps it too. And bonus points for the Pharisee if they can let everyone know how righteous they are. Now, if it isn't obvious, this kind of thing will blind you to your need for mercy. Jesus' parables about the lost coin and lost sheep, if they were meant to demonstrate self-righteousness, if they were meant to demonstrate our works, then the lost sheep would have found his own way home. But that's not what happens. The self-righteous Pharisees, they deny themselves God's mercy Because they don't think they need it. But this morning I want to explore another possible way of being like the Pharisees. A way that isn't particularly religious. See, there are religious outsiders in our day who fall into the same camp as the Pharisees. They're self-righteous. Denying themselves God, God's mercy, because they don't think they need it. They too exalt themselves into places of honor. They deny Christ's invitation because they are unwilling to abandon everything for the sake of the gospel. To use the imagery of the parables, these people are lost, but they would rather consider themselves free. These people would rather be free than confined to the care of what they think is an overprotective and overbearing shepherd. Now, there are many who have wandered from God who think they're better off without him. There are many who don't know God, but have heard rumors of him who think they're better off without him. And whatever lives they've built, whatever values they've pursued, whatever ambitions they've embarked upon, they are unwilling to give them up. These people may never set foot in a church, but they are just as self-righteous as any Pharisee ever was. But what they need is the same as what the Pharisees and scribes needed. And it's the same thing that you and I need. It's to see ourselves for who we really are. We must see our smallness, our weakness, our fragility. We can't run away from our fragility. We can't distract ourselves from our helplessness. We can't invent our way beyond weakness. And it's not just related to the state of our souls and what happens when we die. Who among us is sufficient to face all the troubles that life can bring? How do you face a terminal illness, the loss of a loved one, the crumbling of a marriage, uncertainty about the future? Who, who is sufficient for these things? Apart from God, every single one of us is a lost sheep. We are all helpless and in need of mercy. And God delights in showing mercy. He tracks us down when we've lost our way. And when we've wandered from the fold of God, he picks us up and he places us on his shoulders and he brings us home. And he rejoices. And all of heaven rejoices with him. If you feel like you have done too much, that you are too bad, you're too far gone, or you're this close to making that last big mistake that will finally push God away, 
Know that God's mercy is for you. He sees you in your weakness and despair, and it is his delight to find you and restore you. And this truth is just as important as the first. As important as it is to recognize our need for mercy, it's just as important to recognize God's joy in dishing it out. When you know that God delights in showing mercy, it becomes that much easier to admit you need it. And needing the mercy of God does not mean that you've failed. It means you're human. No matter how strong we are, we all have limits. No matter how righteous we are, we all fall short. And on this side of the new creation, we are all under the curse of sin. But when you have the humility to recognize your need for God... When you cry out to him for mercy, God will lift you up. God will save you just as he's promised. And he does this through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the mercy of God. Jesus Christ is the love of God, the compassion, the loving kindness, the grace of God come for you and me. The son of God who humbled himself And took on flesh so that he might live and die in your place. So that you might be reconciled with God and rescued from the misery of sin and death. Jesus lost his life so that you might find your life in him. Now it's important to note that Jesus wasn't just hanging out with sinners. He wasn't just getting his message out to them. He wasn't just spending time with them so they could experience God's love and learn to love themselves. Jesus was working for and toward their repentance. He wanted them to leave their old lives behind. God delights in showing mercy, but his mercy always calls us out of our sin. After all. It's our sin that gets us into nearly all of our messes. So if there are sins you need to confess, won't you confess and trust in Christ's mercy to restore you? If you've wandered from God, won't you repent and trust in his mercy to joyfully welcome you back? If you've never trusted in God at all, won't you come and let him care for you? So why was Jesus receiving sinners and eating with tax collectors? This is, after all, the problem that Jesus was addressing with his parables. What is Jesus up to? Well, Jesus receives sinners because he delights in showing mercy. Because the God of the universe, who names and numbers the stars and sees the swirling dust and clouds of every galaxy, that God delights in even one person turning back to him. Our Heavenly Father is not angry. He is not begrudging. He is not frustrated. He's not putting a hand to his face and saying, you again. He's merciful, merciful, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. Won't you come to him? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your mercy that withholds The punishment that we deserve. But thank you for your mercy that comes to us in our misery and need and 
picks us up and dusts us off and gives us new life. Thank you for your mercy that comforts us. Thank you for your great love for us, God. Help us to place our hope in your mercy. First and foremost, in that, in that mercy as we found it in Christ, who has come to save us from our sins and to give us new life. Help us to hope and trust in that mercy. And help us to acknowledge and own our own weakness and our own limits. Because, God, no matter, no matter how strong we are, no matter how righteous we might be, we still need you. So thank you, thank you that we don't have to be enough, that you delight in being enough for us, that you delight in showing compassion and care and being merciful. Thank you that when we have wandered and gone astray, you come and find us, that you sent your son Jesus, that we might be saved, that we might be brought, brought home. Lord, I, I just ask that you would help that to just sink down into our bones, that we would Rest in your mercy and trust in your mercy and find freedom in your mercy that we don't have to be enough, that you are enough for us and that you love us and care for us. We love you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.